All right, we're back. Hello. Hey, Joe. Welcome back. Yeah, it's a little bit early. You were away. Yeah, yeah, a couple of weeks. We're, uh, we were on I Hate Us. <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? That is. I get a little dyscalic. I hate us. And I pronounce it I hate us. Yeah. Instead of hiatus. I, I feel like we should be back energized, rip to go, and we do have... Um, a great guest today. We do. We've not recorded it in what Derek Muller described as kind of an inception style time bending. Right. You know, normally we record with, we don't want to take up the guest's time with our nonsense. Right. That's what our listeners time is for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and normally we engage in the, in the time travel yeah. of doing this portion after our conversation with the guest. Cause we can't get it to get, but, but today, right. so I just got back from this, uh, you, you know, Long road trip. Right. And you've got to get back on the road, dude. I'm going back on the road today, driving up to... Time's a wasting. New Haven. Uh, New York and New Haven Man, that's today. like a 14-hour drive, right? Nah, 15? Eh, depends. Oof. We'll see. It was a good trip. It, I'm glad. It was a good trip. Your, your pictures certainly were amazing. And uh, uh, it, it seemed like you were seeing great, wonderful things in, yeah. the, in the great American West. And yeah. it is a beautiful place. Yeah, we weren't. My my daughter has this leg thing, so we weren't able to go backpacking or anything this time. It's not, it's not right, a huge sort of deal, hardcore hiking. Type we weren't stuff. able to. Yeah, so so we did a we did a kind of road trip car camping kind of thing. Yeah, um, did some Which great is, hikes, but we that's mainly great. car camping. I mean, the was four awesome. of you got to spend time together, yeah. and that's really cool. Five thousand miles. Wow, that's a lot. It was a lot. It was a lot. Um, camped in the Grand Canyon, Zion Canyonlands. Wow. So uh, I've never some, been to Zion before. I've been backpacking in Grand Canyon and, and Canyonlands, but never to Zion. And um, I actually had some thoughts about that. I was thinking about blogging. Mm. Um, uh, I, I have a suggestion for, for those parks. Okay. Close down all of the roads. Okay. Yeah. We'll get back to that maybe. Would you have been able to access them if you had? Not in the same way. Okay. But that would be okay with you. That would be better. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, yeah maybe we're not going to get into that now. I don't think we are. You don't think so? Nope. Feedback kind of slowed to a trickle because we we told everyone yeah. we're going on. I hate. I know us there was some, but I I don't know what it all was, and I'm just kind of getting back in town. I'm going out again, so I I don't have my head wrapped around whether we have. There feedback. was very little, so honestly. Maybe people should just email you again. Yeah. Um. I um I just I I have a new follow this morning. You do. Uh, I I followed um uh. uh Friend of the show. You talking about the Twitter? Friend of the show and co-host, uh, Derek Muller. Nice. Has this awesome Twitter. I just saw this this morning, so this is kind of random. He's got this uh, uh, Twitter account called Clickbait Scotus. Okay. Uh, which, um, let, me, let me just give you a little sample. This designer drug is causing problems you'll have to read to believe. And then there's a link to a Scotus opinion. <laughs> This prospective juror was struck from the jury. It's 2015, and it'll shock you. Link to a SCOTUS opinion. Right. See, for each one, he gives like a little, yeah, like BuzzFeed style. Right. I think it's or, totally or the cool. or the onion, um, the onion uh, site, the onion sister site called Clickhole, which is a comedy site. Which is, uh, I'm is, glad to hear that. I was worried. Yeah, yeah. Which is a which is doing a similar sort of, uh, um, you know. Leaning hard on the headline writing, uh, click-inducing uh, hilarity that is the internet. Well, this, this is point. well. This is my this is my recommendation. The first in our series because we're gonna you know the show is gonna 
I think we need to whip the show into shape. So we're going to get some theme music. We're going to have segments. Nice. We've got some bumps. We're going to have some segments. We'll maybe have a game show segment. Right. Um, nice. We're going to get some wacky sounds. Okay, but cool. one of the things we're going to do is... Um, we're going to recommend tw- Twitter feeds. Yeah. It, we need a snappy name for it. Like, you know, um, uh, uh, like Christian's recommended Twitter follow. Okay. That's, you know? that's an, I wouldn't call that super pizzazzy well, yet. We're going to work on that. We today, need to get some sizzle on that stage. Today, okay? it's, uh, well, you know, clearly we need to ask Derek because yeah, the, he can, uh, yeah, he's got clickbait the, SCOTUS. He's is, got mad skills for this. Clickbait. I mean, this stuff. Okay. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Already I asked you. To- Sorry, it was very early. <laughs> Look at the minute marker. Oh, my God. <laughs> Drop a marker. You know, so, let's, you know, we should, we never, have we ever discussed why we don't, why we don't curse on the show? I always make this joke about how it's a family show. Right. And, and it is, I do want people to be able to you listen can, to the car with their kids. And, and what, but what you can never get people to really understand, people who don't know me, yeah. is that I swear a lot. <laughs> and I'm very, of course, <laughs> never in class, of course. Never in conversations with students in a school context, of course. Right. But when I'm with you and our other friends. Or my kids or other young children. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm with you and my friends. <laughs> yeah. And I no longer inhibit myself against... Right. Using curse words. And usually at me in, a, in an aggressive way. Well, you really earn, I bring it out. You really earn um, a good cussing out. Um, and so... I love it. My son especially loves it. Right. <laughs> He's often there to witness them. That's yeah, true. He <laughs> There's usually like an eye rolling. I'll say something, which is, in, which is basically designed to get you to do this right, behavior. Right. Yeah, so you, are, you are fully engaged in this. Uh, this um, uh, this is truly a Kosian thing. It takes two. So we don't generally have cursing on the show. We could. We, we don't. But then you have for to kind put of these two reasons. We have for stuff, two reasons. Right? One, I've got a label in iTunes is explicit, and if you which don't is, do that, which eventually isn't find, what we're doing, right? You so, know, and and so it would be weird. And then I'd have to go through and click that checkbox, and maybe I just do it for the shows where there's cursing, but it's just a pain. So I don't want to. So, so I just bleep things out, which actually, you know, I actually think the Daily Show is funnier with the stuff bleeped out right. than with the stuff in, for example, right? <laughs> right. Um, but I, that's not what I, I'm not trying to for that. I'm not trying to get that effect on the show, but I bleep it out so I don't have to click that explicit right. thing. The other thing is, I, as I said before, I do want people to feel like they can listen to the show in the car with kids and right. it, because the kids will find it very entertaining and edifying, of course, right? right? Of Without course. worrying about that. but. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of second. I don't want to say second. I don't know. Unless we find ourselves in the middle of the Supreme Court's Pacifica opinion justifying the prohibition on indecency in radio broadcast, right. which was literally about a guy being in a car with his kid and hearing the George Carlin monologue come on the radio. Yeah, it's now, kind of what do they call the, the first blow theory? Or the something Car like that? the Carlin monologue. Um, I think that's a different. That's a different theory. Um, the Carlin monologue went on for. What's hilarious about this is it went on for like ten minutes. Right. Yeah. And within the first three words of the, of the, when he really starts to get unhinged yeah. and go on his yeah. rant, you know, turn the radio off is my advice. Right. I mean, you still, so that you don't hear the 10 minute, you know, whatever. Um, but, but yeah, even the first the three words could be kind of, you know, difficult or awkward and think about the children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he has, he hasn't, he has one about thinking about the children. Have you heard that skit from him? From Carlin? Yeah. No, Was it the same skit? It's like people said, you know, what about oh, maybe, the children? And he's yeah, he, and then he then he, he responds with what? Because <laughs> the skit was self consciously about the use yeah. of those words. Yeah, I I think of the children when I'm swearing. I think, boy, I bet they love learning these words. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? I mean, I, we're not getting. There's, I've read some good things about this, but um, the why not swear? Well, 
I think one argument against it would be it shows a certain lack of imagination. It's a kind of I a, hate that argument. It's I hate a, that argument with a passion of a million burning suns. <laughs> Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. That 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 is the one I mean so, vulgarity it is kind of lame, but it, not necessarily that it j- totally depends on how anything can it, be. Right, lame. depends on how you do it. Of right, anything can be done in a boring and trivial way, anything can be done in a fun and exciting way. Right, and being creative with language for the sake of being creative unless it's poetry and meant to delight the aesthetic sense of hearing. Right. To me is a little bit lame in and of itself. So avoiding swearing in order to be creative in a context where you're not trying to be poetic, to me, is lame. Okay. Uh, but, you know, so th- what I told my kids with this stuff, right, it, you know, I was very expl- – like, there's nothing inherently wrong about words and sounds, right? Right. Um, but there is – I you know, we, we had this conversation about politeness a long time back. It's, just, it's the right thing, right place. Exactly. You know, P- the right pig thing, in the parlor, place. The pig in the parlor idea. Right. One of your favorite metaphors. Well, or, or it comes from scenario. The, yeah, they mentioned the Euclid case and other cases, right. but um, yeah, it's about how other people feel, and not everybody feels the same about swearing as no. as you might, right? I know they don't feel the same about it as you do, Joe. You think other people do not feel no. about swearing as I feel? No, I think I think people, uh, a lot of people, would disagree with you about swearing. Okay, uh, and recognizing that fact means that maybe you should. Do- do you think other people might agree with me? Different other people? Of course. Okay. Of course. You know, as on most things, few. <laughs> <laughs> like how best to pronounce to, any given surname? I'm just trying to get back in the saddle over here. I'm just, yeah. My needling you're, skills have, you're doing have, a, have... You're doing a good job. They've, yeah, they've dropped okay, off so a little we're, bit. We gotta, we've got to connect our guest in a minute or two. In, in Yes, a minute or two or seven. <laughs> this is a Miller sense of time, though. Um, you were late today getting over here. So what are, uh, I was a little, I was running behind. I had to bandage my leg and stuff. We were not finished talking about swearing. Oh, okay. So what more do you want to say about swearing? Well, I, I was telling you about, well, you know, what I would tell my kids about Oh, yeah. It, right? What did I you just, tell your kids? Well, I, I, I just said, I guess, I guess we are done. You said right thing, right place. Well, right, I, right thing, wrong place. I, I, I emphasize be, being polite Apply. and thinking about other people and their feelings about it. And other people have feelings which may be different from yours. And also, you know, let's... Be polite amongst one another. Right. You know, if those words have been reserved, but like all words in the language are reserved to carry certain signals and meanings, not just literal meaning, but also uh, emotion, right? Um, yeah. uh, words can be carrier signals for these things. And, right. and if these words have been reserved by us to carry a certain coarseness, harshness, or intensity of feeling, um, depending on how they're used. Including um, intensity of comic feeling. Right. Even if we're just in a family, I don't want my young kid dropping F-bombs. Right. right. Uh, and oh. and part of that is, you know, I part of it is the literal meaning of the term <laughs> at an age where you don't want them to use that literal meaning. But but another is, you know, just that, like, why do we need that kind of intensity and coarseness in our family conversation? We, we do not. Right? right. I mean, um, just tell me, you know, how you feel in in plain language. And but, you know, as the kids have gotten older, a little, a little bit of swearing is OK. Um, it has to be with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she's a little bit more on the Miller end of the spectrum. Well, it's and you know, in the adult world, it's navigating that is a skill, uh, is an is a another social skill. One way to learn it, I suppose, is to simply divorce it from your own lexicon. Right. Uh, that has not been my choice. <laughs> I, I I swear very little. I think. I think that's right. Actually. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more than when my kids were younger, but it's not as though I changed. I mean. You know, I 
That's true. You know, a lot of it depends on sort of what environment you're in consistency. Uh, I, I, I have no children. Um, my dogs do not object to my swearing. Uh, at least not that, I, not that I'm aware of. Um, so I'm less inhibited in that regard as well. Yeah, we'd have to ask the dogs, I guess. I haven't gone through a period of having to make sure that basically 24-7, uh, haven't got, as an adult, I have not had to go through that period. And I didn't, you know, when my kids were young, I didn't monitor them. I didn't feel like I was censoring my speech or anything. I mean, it just but felt in, very in natural. In a similar situation, I would have been. So uh, that's what I'm trying to say. I wonder, though, because I think you just, you know, it's... Do you feel like you censor yourself in other situations where you feel an inhibition on swearing, or do you feel like it just you, it wouldn't occur to you to talk that way? You know what I mean? I would say that there have been moments in class where, if I were talking, <laughs> yeah, of course, if I were talking about a case or a legal concept with a friend, um, I could imagine myself swearing about it in a certain way that I wouldn't in class. Obviously. I guess that's true of you. Yeah. I- so I can think because I care a lot about this stuff. Of and course, so when I really get going, you want to use the full gamut of yes. of Joe Miller. I want to be able to paint with everything on the palette, right? <laughs> right. So yeah, well, we think... still have four minutes, Joe. Okay. You don't need to look at your clock. I, yes, I've got I do them. because you are in you you, you are absolutely <laughs> unreliable in these matters. <laughs> Three Utterly and absolutely. No, well, well. So we're going to talk about a serious topic today with our guest. We are. I'm. I'm. I'm a little bit. Uh, and yeah, and and we're talking on on Friday, um, uh, which is I guess two days. I'm not sure when it occurred after the terrible shooting it happened in Charleston Wednesday night. Yeah, Wednesday night. So it's less than 48 hours. Yeah, it's been a, basically a day and a half in in terms of time. But um, so everything, you know, I we haven't talked about it so far. Uh, it wanted, you know, I don't know. I have nothing to say. I mean, I'm sure this will come up in our conversation. At least I think it might come up in our conversation with our with our guests. Right. Um, I don't know. Because our guest is in South it. Carolina, which is where this event took right. place. And I'm from South Carolina. You are, you know. indeed. Grew up there. Um, spent my whole kind of childhood and, and went to college there. So I feel like I've got a big South Carolina store of experience, although it's been... Um, for me now 22 years since i've had any experience there wow since you lived there yeah and it is you've been back i mean you've had a little bit not a lot but a little bit i haven't spent a huge amount of time there Uh, you know a a a day here and there maybe a week a couple of times um but your mother's sister still lives there right yeah so we we've been to see them a few times my dad is still uh in charleston actually and Mm. we've been there a, a few times but yeah you know the places change um, and, um, in this instance, maybe not fa- as fast as any of us would, would like. Right. Um, but I, I have to tell you, and we got to get on with our guest. Here's one, just to tell you kind of where I am with it. I remember as a college student, uh, seeing this, being in an apartment and seeing the state house with the Confederate flag still flying atop the state houses before it was moved down. Right. And talking with my friends about how much we wish, if we, if only we were this kind of person, if only we were this kind of person that, uh, I wanted to get one of those remote control planes with like a blade on the front of it and fly it into, <laughs> into the Confederate flag. Just to chop it into bits. Just to chop it into bits. Yeah. Like this was not like, you know, this is not like a new thing that p- even people in South Carolina right. have problems with this, right? That this no. is like. It, and it gets me in quite a rage, actually. Yeah. Well, that, the Confederate flag. Yeah. Yeah. I 
find it yeah, it's such a completely appalling thing to me personally i find i find it very it gets me going really hot really fast yeah i think it's it's so I, for me it's know, indefensible i don't think about it all that much it's it, it's an indefensible symbol for me but th- th- that may be another show let's see how this conversation goes we're going to get our guest on the line and yeah on with the show so i'm uh i'm curious to know how you pronounce your surname uh, <laughs> Stoughton. Stoughton. Okay. Yeah. We were, uh, Christian and I were um, marveling at how many different ways that that little O-U-G-H thing can be pronounced. It is It is a little alarming, isn't it? Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I'll tell you, no one in most of the country, no one gets it right on the first try. I get Stoughton a lot. Yeah, that's that's that would have been one of my first two guesses, probably. I, I get stuffed in occasionally. I guess T O U G H strikes people as tough, so they just sort of yep throw it all together. the The only place where people naturally pronounce it correctly is Boston and outside of Boston, and it's worrisome because they mispronounce so many words that <laughs> for them to get my last name correctly is almost a condemnation of the way I pronounce my last name. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm Which, back now. Christian, to I'm catch you now. back up... I did not hear. I was like in an isolation booth. You're okay. talking about the name, right? His, so yes, I get a guess. His, his surname is pronounced... No, 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 no. Uh, uh. Stoughton. As he has indicated to us, uh, that is often the first guess, but it, that is not correct. <sighs> but but I'll give you a second guess, if you'd like. Um, see, the listener... This is fun for the listeners. Cause I know, they know because like they know and you don't yet. Um... Stoughton. See that—that's very close to what is often the second guess. Oh. Do you want to? Do you want a third one, or should I just ruin the suspense? I think you should ruin this. Well, there's no suspense anymore. There's no suspense for the listeners, other than like how idiotic a guess will he make next? Right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'll never that, get it, by the way. I will never that, get it. No, that okay. can be very suspenseful. Okay, so, so yeah, why don't you? Why don't, why don't you ruin it for us, Seth? Uh, Seth. See, I got the first name wrong. <laughs> wow, you're on a roll. Oh, I'm rusty. I'm rusty. Go ahead, Seth. What is it? Lay it on us. Stoughton. Stoughton. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. Me neither. No, you and most of the country, I'm afraid. Now, in high school, did, um, uh, where, where'd you go to high school, Seth? I went to high school in South Florida. South Florida. Now, uh, so maybe, maybe, um, uh, did, did your friends call you the Stoaster, maybe? Uh, no, I, okay. I got, I got spud a lot for reasons. <laughs> yeah. For, for reasons that are somewhat arcane now, I think it, it, it uh, that popped up in a, a boy scout context. Yeah. Spud. Um, spud. Yeah. Huh. Was, and that was not related to the spuds McKenzie craze. Was it? Uh, n- not that I'm aware of. No, I, I think it had some sort of obscure relation to potatoes actually but I, again I, I don't i don't actually remember the origin very well there's a great yarn brand these days called spud and chloe just okay. throwing that out there this is another new segment of the show as we knitting with joe i was gonna say <laughs> i was gonna say you know joe fabrics or what do they call them what do they call yarns what's the generic term you could call it fiber fibers you could call fiber yeah, arts this is, this is the fiber arts segment with joe yes okay which that, is just a barn burner that segment is now over let's uh <laughs> let's proceed to what people may tune in for which is finding out um uh fascinating things about law society policy right and geeky things right. um so you, we we had you on, i mean seth i don't know if if joe told you when he um 
originally got in touch with you, but we, we've been wanting to have someone on with your area of expertise for a long time now. Um, since I think even before the Ferguson incidents, we've been yeah. talking about months and months and months talking about policing, both um, in our episodes and off air. and off air. We've been talking yeah, so, about it. So and you are a real dream guest because you're, you're writing your scholarship, your, your background as a police officer. Uh, you, and, and you've been doing some great kind of both popular writing and, and academic writing, uh, on the issue of policing. Um, I, were, were you yourself surprised about how kind of, uh, in the moment your expertise has become in the last few months? Oh, completely, completely. When I moved down to South Carolina, um, almost a year ago now, it was the, the end of June, very beginning of July. Um, I had no idea you know policing was certainly something that i am interested in certainly something i think is worthy of a lot of public attention but it's never really been the focus of sustained public attention there are occasional flashpoints um, but then ferguson happened and basically we haven't stopped talking about policing since yeah that's interesting that you say that because because it's not as though people haven't been you know Issues with cops haven't been in the news in the past. They have been. I mean, you know, right. the uh, various That's, kinds of riots, different particular incidents. Stop and frisk in the mayoral campaign in New York. Right. The Abner Louima case from way back in the day. I mean, these. Okay. Yeah, it really it's all is, been bubbling. It's the sustained, around. as you as you say, Seth. It's the sustained interest in it that is um, that seems to be the defining kind of uh, uh, difference in, in in this particular cultural moment. I think so. Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm seeing. If, if you look back, I mean, even to some of the like Rodney King video, right? Um, and the uh, Abner Rwima and the uh, uh, Amadou Diallo and all of these sort of um, flashpoints, these high interest, really egregious actions by police, they'll often get connected to each other. Uh, you know, one that happens in 2004 will get connected and will remind everyone about one that happened in 2001. But between 2001 and 2004, there might be very little attention. There might be very little said about it. And that's very different than what we have now. We've had basically constant writing and attention to not just police actions, but also sort of practical police theory. We've had police chiefs talking about what their agency's missions in the community actually are. Um, and a, a much more robust dialogue than I think maybe has ever happened before, certainly in recent memory. Yeah. I want to get to your guesses about, about why that is what, what's different now. And, and maybe before we do, I just want to tell you about kind of as an amateur in this area, like what kind of my impressions uh, have been, I mean, and what my exposure to these issues has been. And, and Joe, you can jump in here too, but um, for a long time, the kind of contempt of cop issue and attitude has has bothered me. I mean, you know, you know in terms of, as kind of a realist about the law, um, you know, I I think both you and I, Joe, I mean, I think both of us see law as kind of a lived experience. It is, you know, and, and police enforcing a kind of contempt of cop attitude, right, where they demand respect. And they are a law unto themselves, or at least they can be. They can certainly arrogate that power very, very easily. And we've seen a number of incidents of those things. And um, uh, I remember there was a, this American life episode um, was it about four years ago, five years ago now um, uh, about the uh, uh, police office, uh, pol police department in New York. And it w was really kind of a, where, where a guy had recorded uh, a police officer had recorded 
hours and hours of conversations in the uh, in, in the uh, uh, police precinct uh, at the meetings and on, on ride, uh, you know, riding along and, and, and you know, riding around uh, the, the beat. And and it was amazing, you know, the, the internal incentives that they were operating under the culture of the place. It was seemed to me totally antithetical to the rule of law. And, um, I, you know, I, I remember as a college student, I was pulled over by a cop once because I think I had long hair at the point. I was driving a, a van and I had stopped uh, at a stop sign and waited because I was trying to do something else. And, and a cop comes up and and, and uh, stops me because he said I was acting suspicious because I asked why I'd been stopped. He said, hey, you're acting suspicious. And I, OK. And then he was because you were. Wait a minute. So you were just you were stopped at a stop sign, but then you you weren't moving again. I, was, I wasn't moving because I was trying. I was looking for something. I didn't want to drive and be looking for something at the same time. And then I saw the cop behind me and then I started again. And he thought maybe it. it ah, OK. Maybe he thought I was casing the neighborhood or something like that. Okay. Right. But. So he pulled you over? Yeah. I don't know that there was anything wrong with this. I don't know if it was no. reasonable suspicion or not. I'm just trying to understand not. what was going on. But That's he wasn't right. very friendly. <laughs> and, um, and that was and just... This, and this was in South Carolina. Yeah, because yeah. That's yeah. Where this you was in South Carolina. Because that's, that's where you grew up. And, and this is not a story of any kind of police brutality or, no, or, or, even, or even contempt of cop the way I'm telling it. But when I hear these stories, you know, when, when you are, uh, uh, when a police officer, when you're kind of under that control and it feels like control yep um the abstract idea of your rights what you can all that kind of seems to go out the window and the police officers themselves uh in some uh in some what's the right word i'm I'm searching for words this morning uh police departments i guess right um there's a whole culture of demanding respect and kind of enforcing the law that they think of rather than the law that actually is okay so those are a bunch of kind of random thoughts uh do you want to put those in some kind of order seth i've given you the tall the tall order of putting can i say something yeah go which is um uh i think so so another huge thing and and actually the 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 sign the thing that was the flag on the road which i now look back and think it was the sign of, of this all coming was um the president's uh getting involved in, embroiled in um, the Skip Gates controversy. This is Professor Henry Louis Gates right. yeah, yeah. trying to get into his home and the police officer who uh, thought he was a criminal. Right. Um, and, the, and the president getting embroiled in, in that. Um, uh, and they, the, they had a beer. This is the... <laughs> right. Po- yeah. po- police issues in, in the United States in our lifetime, in our era, inevitably... It to some degree or another become race issues as well. Okay, and to set it up further, here's what's difficult about it, and here's why we didn't want to just have the conversation we're having now and have that be a show, you know, because on and, the one, and I haven't yet said the thing I wanted to say. But oh, go ahead. Th- then jump. Then please do. Um, that that <laughs> what what's so what I find so powerful about what Seth has done is he he's creating a context for me to give me a way to think and talk about this stuff in a way that I feel like finally. I'm seeing more, I'm, I'm getting more light and getting a little less heat. Well, that's, and that right. is really powerful experience for me as a reader uh, to have seen that. And which is why I reached out. To right. Him. Cause here's where the conversation would have gone, right? We would have, uh, you know, y- you have a right not to respect the cops, right? I mean, this is your right as an American, right? Is to be disrespectful in a way, right? I mean, right. You don't we ha- don't live in a fascist police state, correct? E- exactly. And <laughs> and the cops only have the power to enforce the law and to do, right? And, they only, and we know that this is, but the problem is, um, you know, what is it like to be a police officer? 
you know, and, and to live at kind of the edge. It, it's it's a job which carries like an unusual risk of committing constitutional violations, right? And yeah. how do you navigate that area? And that's so that was the missing piece in, in, that we wanted to f- have someone like you on for our conversation is you know to understand the constraints within which uh, cops work and, and how they balance these things and how, how someone could, is it possible to do a job where you are constantly at the receiving end of maybe even disrespect and under the risk of the threat of violence? Um, how, how does that all work? So, uh, so you're here now. So tell us about, our, you know, what we're getting wrong in our thoughts or how unformed they are and how, how would you, how would you make these, how how would you crystallize these thoughts that we're having better and and complicate them maybe? Well, there's a there's a lot there, um, and policing. I, I want to pick up on on something that uh, that Joe mentioned. It, it's it's very easy to turn police issues into race issues, and I think in many cases it's very important to do that. It's at least very important to acknowledge the role that race plays in police issues. Um, but that's that's one of those areas where I think simplifying the conversation to just equate police and community tensions with racial tensions um, actually hurts the conversation a little bit. Uh, it, it doesn't take into account everything that we should be taking into account. I, and I'm not sure anything can take into account everything that I think um, we should be taking into account. To, to be clear... I'm not sure I can think of everything that I think we should be taking into account when it comes to policing. Right. It's a very, very complicated job, and it's complicated in part because of this inherent tension in it. On the one hand, you have this idea of protect and serve, um, which, to be clear, is a little pithy, right? It, it goes well on the side of a, a police car or on a um, recruitment video, but when you actually delve into it, it's tough to figure out what exactly that means. And that's sort of a, um, an example of the, the difficulty of policing. Um, so on the one hand, you have this idea of protecting the community. And on the other hand, you have the idea of apprehending people who may not want to be apprehended, investigating people who may not want to be investigated, dealing with people who might um, attempt to bring harm to individual police officers. And the guiding light that sort of instructs officers or is thought to instruct officers in how they go about that job is the constitution. Well, I mean, mean, but the constitution is a, is a floor, right? I mean, it's, this is what's kind of bothered me about. uh, And and I think maybe you've written about it. I mean, that too many police departments take the constitution as the rules for what they should do when, when what the Supreme court is announcing are the minimal standards for the protection of individual rights, right? Absolutely. That's right, Christian. So, so uh, when I say it's that, that guiding light is thought to be the constitution, (laughs) that thought comes both from within law enforcement and also from outside of law enforcement. Um, As a legal scholar, we tend to think first and foremost about constitutional issues, right? Um, I, I haven't done uh, testing on this, but I, my strong intuition is that if you really delved into it with police officers, particularly frontline officers and investigators, um, the Constitution doesn't play any particularly privileged role 
a rule isn't necessarily more important to them because it's constitutional, which then raises the question, so what actually guides their actions? And I think a lot of it has to do with this um, somewhat amorphous concept of mentality or mission or what uh, a police trainer in Illinois calls operational philosophy. What is it that, uh, that police officers are actually there to do? Because that can shape every bit of their interaction. So you, you mentioned the officer, Christian, who stopped you and was um, unnecessarily abrupt or rude or really uh, perhaps as a way to establish command or de- uh, establish the fact that he is the power in that interaction and needs to be respected. Um, you could have the same interaction with a cop with a different attitude, a different mentality, and it would w- look very different. Um, so why do we get one versus the not- uh, another? You know, I, I don't have a I don't have a great answer that that goes across all police agencies or all police actions. Well, you uh, you, t- you tell the story in a personal way in this. Uh, I think it's the Warriors Guardians uh, piece um, in the Harvard Law Review Forum, which we'll link up. Uh, the, of you yourself as a very junior officer um, having an interaction where where you say that you were in retrospect ruder than you need to be, and that was pointed out to you by a senior officer. Is that do I have that story right? Uh, yeah. So I, uh, I, I, I honestly, I don't even remember what the interaction was. I remember I was talking to a young woman, maybe her fiance or boyfriend or husband was being arrested. I, I forget what it was. Um, but I was not uh, terribly polite. I don't think I was um, verbally abusive, but I was certainly not engaging with her in any sort of useful way. And I, I, I was there to do the police thing, right? We're arresting someone. You need to stand back over here and let us do our job. And another officer, actually not a senior officer, he was uh, he was a little bit junior to me just by a couple of months, but he had worked for a couple of years in a rural sheriff's department where he was used to doing a lot of policing without backup. Uh, and that can really change the way that officers interact with people mm. uh, when they know that their nearest backup might be half an hour or more away. Sometimes it changes it for the better. Sometimes it changes it for the worse. But he came up to me after the, the interaction and said, you really need to be better about the way that you talk to people, because if you're getting your butt kicked one day, and that's not the word he used. If you're getting your <laughs> butt kicked one day, you're on the ground getting kicked. You want the people in the community to step forward and hold somebody back and go, no, no, no. He's one of the good guys. Don't do that. You don't want them to join in the kicking. You don't want them to start helping beat you down. And it's very simplistic. It seems almost obvious, but the idea is tremendously important. Treating people well, talking to people well, not just in the short term, but in the long term actually improves officer safety. That was his point. Mm. You're making yourself safer. And if we go one step further, you're making it safer for other officers. If people feel good about their interactions with you, if people don't walk away from an interaction resenting you and fearing, to some extent, the next interaction with you or with other officers. So that that became sort of a touchstone for me. I I, um, thought maybe too long about it, but it really sort of resonated. Uh, That's part of good policing. And it's not just good policing because it makes the community happy. 
Um, the, the history of policing is an interesting one about divorcing it from exactly what the community wants. But what he's talking about is not just making the community or an individual happy, it's also about ensuring that officers are safer. And that's part of that tension in policing. On the one hand, keep officers safe. On the other hand, keep the community safe. Yeah, there are all these competing goals, aren't there? And tremendous, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's uh, apprehending bad guys. You know, f- fewer bad guys out there. There is erring on the other side to make sure that the police are not used as an arm, uh, as as an extension of of tyranny of of central state actors or something, right? There, there is the um, uh, keeping the officers safe goal, right? Um, and, and none of these goals can be pursued in the exclusion. To any of the others, right? They're figuring out who the bad guys are. I mean, like you you mentioned apprehending them. (laughs) You first have to know the person you're apprehending is the person who actually did the thing. Right. Or at least have a good idea that they did. And and that's an error-filled, necessary, I'm not criticizing anybody. That is inherently an error-filled process. So some of the people you apprehend are not going to be the perp. Yeah, and so if the incentives are to be perfect, for whatever reason, if the incentives are to make an arrest early and to get a conviction, Right. Not only are you, you know, punishing someone who's innocent, but you also, as we've talked about in earlier shows, you've not actually done the job of getting the guilty person. Right. Right. Um, Even even moving beyond the idea of apprehending is the bigger idea of protecting. Right. right. Uh, Officers are thought to be, again, that phrase thought to be this thin blue line between order and chaos. Uh, the, the symbol of the thin blue line is this black background with a horizontal blue line that bisects it. And the two areas of black on the top and bottom are um, embodiments on the one hand of society and order and on the other hand of criminality and anarchy. So it's not just about apprehending the bad guy and you might misidentify the bad guy. It's also about protecting the good guys from the bad guys in a more abstract way. Not only do you have a problem there with misidentification, right? Identifying who's a bad guy and who's a, who's a good guy and who needs to be protected from whom. But it's tremendously and actually um, counterproductively simplistic. Someone who has engaged in criminality in the past can still be a good guy who needs protection. Someone who has been perfectly law-abiding up until now can still engage in criminality and be a bad guy, right? Mm. It's a very, very fluid individualized um, guiding principle, protect the good from the bad. Uh, But it's very easy for officers like all of us as humans to try and simplify that, right? To try and categorize all people into good or bad and maybe have a little thin gray area between the two, where in fact, most of us exist in that gray area between the two. Yeah, we all, we all break laws all the time in a way, right? I mean, we, we, we speed and do that. So not, but not only are individual characters fluid in this way and our, uh, our, 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 the relation uh, in which we stand to the rest of society, but society is itself fluid, uh, changing its priorities in terms of defining what is criminal, defining what is a misdemeanor. These are, these are changing over time. I mean, we see that with, with marijuana. We see it with, uh, uh, with with traffic laws, um, uh, we 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 see it with uh, well with with um, um, with sexuality. I mean, you know, sure. what used to be criminal with sexuality is not. So the our attitudes towards what makes a good and bad guy are changing, and and as individuals, our identity as a good or bad guy changes over time. These are very I don't know complex things, and 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 that's just you know this is just with respect to one goal um, that 
uh, a police officer might have. And these are, you know, there's again, the staying alive goal. There's the uh, uh, maintaining order in a more generalized sense. There's, you know, there are all kinds of goals. And I just wonder, and we're going to get into the, what I think is a very useful paradigm that you set out, which is kind of an overarching theme in, in terms of defining what a good police department culture should be. This is the warrior culture versus the guardian uh, culture, the warrior attitude versus the guardian attitude. Um, it just at, at, a, at an initial level, and I want to come back to more specific examples uh, later. Um, is there, do you think that's, I mean, obviously you do think it's a useful paradigm. Is it, um, is it going to be adequate though, given, given all these different goals? You know what I mean? I mean, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Is 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 it is it an umbrella that's useful but we have to define for are there like a whole bunch of different kinds of guardian approaches and and it becomes a, a matter of specifics in terms of inculcating the right police officer attitude? Do you want a diversity of police officer attitudes within a department? Is that helpful in some way given all of these competing goals? I mean, how, do you know what I'm saying? I do. Yes. And to to some extent um the when I'm talking about a guardian mentality or a warrior mentality, that too is simplified, right? Um, I, the the word semantically can be interchangeable. It's how uh, I, I tried to define the concept, and we'll talk about that more in a second. I'm sure I tried to define those two concepts uh, in the in the paper. Um, I do think they're useful, I, and yes, we need. Well, let me back up. I do think they're useful. The idea of a guardian goal, a guardian mentality is useful because it can help you decide how to weigh those different priorities against each other. And also when you're weighing the different priorities or when you've decided which priority is um, the, the one that you have to base your actions on, it can also determine the range of acceptable actions for an officer to take. It's not always going to lead every officer to the same result, though. And that's, I think, what you were talking about, a diversity of attitudes or actions based on uh, a guardian mindset. Two officers with the what I view as the right approach to policing might still handle an interaction differently. Um, an, in an identical interaction, one might decide that it is in the best interest of uh, the community, it is in the best interest of advancing trust between the public police agency and the community to make an arrest. Another might decide that it's not. I think that's okay. Um, there can be a, a range of acceptable approaches, even within one particular overarching mindset or mentality. But having a clear mission, having a clear mentality, I think, can also help rule out a bunch of actions. Yeah, I, I and it sounds like the 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 current approach uh, you you reference in your in the in the Harvard Law Review Forum piece you reference that a lot of training materials already seem to have gone all in on the warrior culture as an explicit model for training and for conceptualizing the work. Absolutely. It, in fact, I was just talking to um, a, a journalist who sat in on what's called street survival training. There's a uh, there's a police gross. <laughs> I mean, uh, just what a terrible phrase, but yeah, I, one of, one of them, in fact, I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf. One of the most influential, uh, police training manuals, uh, a, a series of books, but one of them is called street survival. That's, that's the name of the book street survival. Um, 
by a, a gentleman named Charles Remberg. Another one is uh, The Tactical Edge. And these books are about surviving high-risk patrol and surviving armed encounters. Um, yeah, brought to you by the authors of Kill Them All. I mean, it's just like, yikes. Well, is there, is there an element? <laughs> go, yeah, and, go ahead, And Seth. they would say it's brought to you by the authors of Survive Them All, right? They would say it's brought to you by the officers of Don't Be Killed because cops live in a really hostile world. Now, um, I was the, looking at some of the things that you'd reference though on this, and and so I wonder, you know, the old adage I think with doctors, at least, the, is that you know after you go to medical school, you become a hypochondriac, right? And it's the same <laughs> thing that we've all kind of experienced with the uh, with search engines now, where you type in your symptom and you you right. fi- figure out you must have some kind of terrible cancer or something like that. Yeah, uh, or law students and torts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, they, they do is tortious. Exactly, and you know it becomes a game in a way, and, and um, so. It, so I, the statistics that I was able to find from, from some of your citations, I think I searched from there, was that the fatality rate for officers, um, I think was about like one in 10,000. And it, maybe it's, maybe it's twice the rate. It's, it's, uh, of, of other jobs, but not, you know, that sounds like a lot, but we're talking about small numbers here. So yeah, not maybe hugely more. Yeah, but maybe it's because they're inculcated in this way and they, it would be much higher if they weren't. Right. So it's hard to understand the causal. Relationship. Well, this is going back to the 90s. I think I, I don't know when the and, and maybe you can fill us in on this, too, when the when the militarization of the, the police in terms of both equipment and mindset, whether that's always been there or whether it really, really took off in the 90s, whether with broken window policing or something else. Um, uh, but is there a sense that I, I don't know if these surveys have been done that that like with uh, people who watch a lot of the um, evening news? You know, there are these studies about especially older people who watch the evening news dramatically overinflate or, or have it have a hugely uh, 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 incorrect impression of crime rates. Like they think it's much higher than it is. Do oh, yeah. police officers have the same thing? Because, of course, you see crime all the time, right? You you see <laughs> all the murders that happen in your city or the, the all the all the rapes and all the assaults. And so I would think it would just be human nature to kind of have a, have a wrong and inflated estimate of the danger to both the average citizens, but also to yourself. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, officers do deal with crime at a very up close and personal level. It's not just watching the evening news. They're also responding to the burglary calls and the robbery calls and the gunshot calls and the shoplifting calls, the minor calls, uh, as well as a whole range of other non-criminal related calls, which are worth talking about, but I'm going to put that to the side for a minute. And they are very aware of violence against officers. Uh, I get an email from the, um, I actually forget if the email is from the officer down Memorial. No, it's from officer.com. Every time an officer is killed in the line of duty or dies, not necessarily is killed, right? But just dies in the line of duty. I get an email notification. That happens at least every couple of days. Now, most of those are um, accidental or natural causes or traffic crashes. Most of those are not felonious killings, but some are. About on average right now, about one a week is a felonious killing. Officers are aware of when other officers are killed or seriously injured in the line of duty, particularly if it's felonious. That training that you mentioned from the article and the training that I was discussing in the street survival um, seminars involves watching a lot of videos of officers dash cam footage or occasionally now bystander footage of officers being beaten badly or disarmed or killed or all three of those things. So just the, the, um, just the, the, 
you're, you're familiar and, and many of your readers will be familiar with the cognitive bias called the availability heuristic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cops, yeah. cops are humans. They have an availability heuristic lacking any sort of um, precise data about exactly how common violence and particularly fatal violence against officers are. They estimate it based on the number of incidents, similar incidents that they're aware of. And they're aware of a lot. What's intriguing is that that there's sort of a loop here, right? Because you mentioned this email alert from uh, uh, what was it, officer dot com? Officer dot com. Yeah. Right. So so clearly, um, the hearing about fatalities of people who work on the same job you do, those are going to be highly salient events. If I received a regular email alert about the law professors dying on the job, I would know <laughs> about them. But here's the interesting. Here's another yeah. interesting thing. I don't get such an email. Why? Yeah. Because there isn't something created to provide it. So there's something about feeding oneself this salient thing. Like, why is Officer.com sending email alerts about officer fatalities? Absolutely. It's you, feeding yeah. a culture, <laughs> right? Well, but it's also a response to real danger. I mean... Right, because the cult and the culture is based in part in reality, as all are, right? And, so, and, I, and I found these stats. I just want to mention this because maybe this will throw another wrinkle into it. Um the, the stat I found, and maybe it's a little bit old, was about one in 10,000 deaths uh, for police officers and about one in 20,000 for all other occupations. And I'm sure that, like, you know, fishing boats in Alaska, notoriously, may, maybe even higher, prob- probably much higher, probably higher than police officers, but but one in 20,000 for all others. So about so police officers, about twice the, the normal rate. But but among the police officers, 31% of those deaths are, are highway deaths, vehicular deaths, and mm. 45% are, are homicides, and the remaining 24 is like others. So I assume that's like heart attacks and, and other kind of uh, – and other things. Um, so I imagine that you don't get an email about officer deaths from traffic accidents that didn't involve like high-speed chases and other things which you could attribute to the, the felonious actions of another, Right. Even though it's like thirty-one forty-five, it's not quite as high as the, the the vehicular deaths aren't quite as high as the homicide deaths, but but still very very significant. Um, oh yeah, and- the, those emails come too. I, there was just an email about uh, an agent, an officer who succumbed to cancer related to the September eleventh attacks, for example. Ah. Um, there are uh, emails about officers who collapse during training from apparent cardiac incidents. Mm. Um, and and who are uh, involved in fatal traffic crashes, either single car crashes or crashes in which there's no violent intent. You know, someone falls asleep at the wheel, for example. So let's pull back to so, so that you know, works against the bias, though, right? I mean, the, the fact that they get a full picture of all these deaths would work against this bias. Well, remember, we're just talking about one email from one source. Yeah, those yeah, may but... not be what are talked about at the water cooler. Those may not be video. In fact, I'm, those are not the videos that are used in training. And I, I want to focus on the traffic accidents one because there's, a, there's a, I think, a very positive initiative within law enforcement to get more officers to wear their seatbelts. And they've been using videos, um, not necessarily actual dash cam or actual uh, camera footage videos, but they've been doing a lot of video reenactments, training officers um, about Basic safety, put your seatbelt on and you are less likely to die in a traffic crash. Uh, California has some wonderful PSAs directed at officers about this, and that's bringing attention to it. But those videos are created intentionally to have the sort of emotional 
significance, this emotional valence in a way that a video of an officer being beaten and killed doesn't need to be created to have that just by the nature of what you're seeing. It's terrifying. It has that emotional weight that's almost visceral. That that sounds right to me. It sounds like the same way that people react much more strongly to to people dying of shark attacks than of uh, motor vehicle accidents on the way to the beach, right? When, yeah. And as far as history, um, it, it's interesting. I don't have a, a great answer for you, but I can tell you that uh, concern, in including a sometimes exaggerated concern about officer safety, goes way back uh, in the eighteen. 18- 30s and 40s, when cities were starting to adopt what we now consider modern police departments in this country, um, most agencies did not allow officers to carry guns. They prohibited them. And by the 1850s, agencies were starting to allow officers to carry guns, not necessarily because they thought it was a better policy, but because officers were already doing it. In fact, so many officers were already doing it that you couldn't discipline all of them for violating the policy against carrying guns. So uh, Philadelphia is a good example. When Philadelphia adopted its uh, policy allowing officers to carry firearms, it was more like an acknowledgement of what officers were already doing than an actual change in practice. Let's uh, let's back up to the the warrior guardian uh, distinction and um, the the reason that I mentioned before that this was already a huge part of the training materials is because it's not like we're confronting a situation where uh, we have to decide like there isn't a cultural matrix and we have to decide which one we're going to use going forward. There's already one there, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, your the point you just made about you know people who were doing this job felt an, an urge to use a technology that was available to them, namely sidearms, and so that wound up having effects on the way things are constructed. Right? Um, that that's going to keep happening. Right? What technologies are available? How how? But it, but it gets fed into this sort of frame. Um, and one thing I was wondering about in the difference between warrior and guardian was. I, I kept thinking, well, you know, what what is what is the what is the culture like in um, among firefighters or among um, emergency medical uh, first responders? In other words, people who are dealing with these sort of human crisis situations, but don't have the other part of the mission of apprehending a wrongdoer or um, you know uh, confronting someone who might be engaged in this. Uh, intentionally wrongful act, right? So in a way, they have a similar mission, but in a way, there's this one piece that's quite different. I would think that if we looked at firefighters and EMT folk, we'd see a lot more of guardian talk and a lot less warrior talk. Do you have a sense for that? Uh, A little bit of one, but it's much more, it's pretty anecdotal. So um, yeah, I I think that's probably right. It certainly matches my, my intuitions. Officers and EMTs, paramedics, uh, I'm sorry, firefighters and EMTs and paramedics are certainly aware of the potential for danger in their jobs. Um, They may be trained, for example, with different scenes not to respond directly to a scene, but instead wait for the police to ensure that the scene is safe, Mm. Uh, like a shooting scene, for example. They may intentionally hold off a couple of blocks away or a mile or so away and wait for the officers to secure and call them in. 
so it, it's not that they're unaware of threat, but they may respond to. Um, well, let, let me give you let me give you an example. One of the things that I'm a fan of is what's called near miss training or near miss review. And this was brought to my attention by a criminologist here at South Carolina named Jeff Alpert, who's one of the leading experts in police use of force and pursuits. And he pulled it from what firefighters do. Uh, when firefighters are engaged in um, a, a bad fire or a bad uh, medical scene, and things could have really gone bad. In other words, there could have been a real tragedy. Something bad might have happened, but it didn't. It was averted. Many departments, many fire departments do this near-miss review, an after-action debriefing about what could have happened, what could have gone sour, and how they were able to avoid it. And the purpose of that is to adopt those practices, learn the lessons that you can from that incident so you can apply it to future incidents. Similarly, when something does go bad, when a firefighter is killed or when a firefighter fails to um, rescue someone the way that they intended to, they do an after action review that's not necessarily punitive but is intended to identify potential for improvements, right? That's very different than policing. Policing doesn't have any sort of near-miss review. If hmm. an officer could have used force but didn't have to, that might never even make it into the report. Uh, hmm. One of the things that I've said before is officers at many agencies have to fill out use-of-force reports, but there's no such thing as a I-didn't-have-to-use-force report. Yeah, like, an, like, wow, this is great. I successfully avoided having to use force. Right. And no one <laughs> might ever know. There's no, there's no official way of tracking that information or reviewing the incident or trying to draw broader lessons from it that we might encourage other officers to adopt through training or even through peer pressure, right? Peer uh, guidance. And the similarity between, you know, the firefighter and the EMT and the police officer, and you use this word in, in, in the things you've written, they all need to have the kind of tenacity, right? The sort of like, this could be dangerous, it could be harrowing, it's very demanding, I need to make it through, right? Because what I'm doing is critical to the safety of other people. But... It's, but it can be construed in these. It, I just don't feel like we have a warrior problem in firefighting, right? Culturally, it, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, I think honestly that the difference there may be uh, this idea of malice. Um, fires, yeah. though we might talk about them in this way, fires are not malicious. They are not out to kill you in a way that police officers are afraid that people are. It doesn't require them to sort among people. In terms of, and, and assess the danger of human beings, right? You know, you know, the fire is dangerous, right? And, and, and you're allowed to be disrespectful to the, uh, to the fire, right? No but what we're probably, fire what, has no constitutional rights. What and, we're examining is, okay, yes, that is a difference. What should the consequence be of that difference? Well, let me, let me throw a, a wrinkle into this because, because Seth, you did cite to a paper which compares police officers at the other end of the spectrum, not to, people who are clearly guardians, but to people who are clearly warriors, and that is the military, right? And there's this paper by Klein that you that you cite to, what's it called? It's called um, 
the good stranger frame for police and military. Oh yeah. And, and, and it looks at the, you know, basically actual warriors are more effective when the populace, um, you know, this is especially in the kinds of military actions in which we now find ourselves. These are kind of non total war scenarios where there is a civilian population that we don't want to destroy and decimate, but rather we want to rebuild a nation or to uh, uh, basically wrest control from, from bad guys. So it, just assume the frame. I don't, I don't care right now, but that the military, the, the actual warriors themselves can be more effective if they aren't warriors against everybody, right? If they do the kinds of things you're talking about um, uh, that you would like to see police do more amongst the populations in which they find themselves. That, that's exactly right. One of the interesting things when the U.S. military was overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they started on what's been called in the media hearts and minds campaigns um, as a as a counterinsurgency technique, um, they reduced their militarized appearance. So more foot patrols, for example, uh, there are some examples of commanders who started attending meetings with tribal elders without wearing helmets or body armor, um, exposing themselves clearly to some amount of risk, um, what I would call prudent risk, depending on the circumstances. The point is that built more trust and they had a better um, relationship with the community and thus they were more effective at the counterinsurgency operations. Now, what's interesting about this is that hearts and minds type of policing, uh, I'm sorry, that hearts and minds type of military action really pulled from community policing concepts that have been around for 40 or so years. And what we're seeing now, it's come full circle. We see um, military members who were involved in hearts and minds campaigns and counterinsurgency tactics coming back to the United States going either back to their jobs or starting jobs at police departments and bringing some of that community policing idea back from uh, an environment that is much more conflict ridden than domestic policing is. Yeah, I mean, it's, so let's let, why don't we bring it to a specific case? Let's talk about Ferguson for, for a second. And, um, you know, when, when I saw the images happening in Ferguson when I saw the the um which reports, phase of Ferguson this is we... this is um after the um so the protest phase the, the protest phase when they were arresting journalists when when under the guise of disorderly conduct or, or other vague laws which are basically contempt of cop can be used in a contempt of cop kind of way mm. um they're saying you know leave this store now do this now do that now and if you don't do these things we're going to arrest you with no actual intention, I think, to bring charges, right? But but basically, you know, the law is you do what I say, and the punishment for not doing the law is that um, I will, you know, take you to jail, and you'll lose some time, et cetera, et cetera. I'm seeing all of this happen, and I'm thinking that basically there is no law here. In, in a context where there also seemed to make the military point, the, that link of, but but running in the other direction, they're, they're using what looks like paramilitary equipment, yes. right? They're not, it doesn't seem like normal, quote, normal policing. Right. Seems like they're gearing up for you know armed insurrections, and it, it, exactly. So there's that when that people culture, are just protesting. Right? <laughs> so given this culture of what looks like lawlessness and warrior mentality, you know, for me, I saw this. You've got to start over. This is not about reforming. This is about this police department needs the death penalty. <laughs> we need to destroy this police department and build it up 
from the beginning, maybe with some of the same people, uh, but maybe, but you know, uh, maybe, maybe very different people. And so I just want to ask you, first of all, was that kind of, did you have that reaction? Did you think this was an unreformable thing or, or do you think that, um, and if so, like, how would you do that? How would you do that reformation process? So looking at the early Ferguson, uh, I, I don't know if I thought, if I've thought about before, whether the early Ferguson response indicated that it was unreformable. It certainly indicated some severe mistakes. But I, I want to go even before we saw the Ferguson response, when we saw the, um, the protest and the nature of the protests in Ferguson, that should have been a signal that the policing had gone bad in that area. That was a symptom of a breakdown in the relationship between the community and the police department. The police department's aggressive militarized response and their use of um, what I think are pretty questionable tactics like broad arrests as a way of uh, as a way of what I'm not sure uh, establishing order may be the best possible spin you can put on it. But I think yeah, martial law, right? Demanding respect may be more accurate. that was sort of a continued sign that the relationship had broken down, right? That that policing had gone bad there. When the DOJ report about Ferguson came out, um, yeah, I think you're starting to look like that's a good case for the nuclear option. We need a completely, certainly we need a completely different command structure. Whether we need all new staff, particularly at the front lines, I'm not sure because police officers, like most employees, will by and large do what they are instructed to do. They will exist in the culture that shapes their behavior and they will their their behavior will acclimate to that culture. Well, well, here's here's what I was thinking, though, Seth, that that basically you would have a formal statement that you would disband the police department. Right. And then immediately reform it. And maybe you would rehire some of the same officers. But you need in my mind, you needed something to signal. Partly because I, I had in my, in my mind a little bit of kind of the guardian versus warrior, like we need a completely different uh, frame. And so all of these officers who and the, there may be excellent frontline officers in, in, you know, in the Ferguson PD who you would want to hire again. I've got no idea, but that there should be some break. In other words, we're not continuing your employment. You're being right. employed by the new Ferguson PD. And I, it's I, a break that not I, only it's a break everyone recognizes. It's like not only does the public not in the police force recognize it, the police themselves recognize it. Yeah. Because it's been marked publicly clearly. Is there value to that kind of symbolism? And would that be key in your mind to inculcating in this new ethic of of guardianship rather than than war? Yes, I think it could have some symbolic importance there. Uh, In fact, that's what Camden, New Jersey did. Camden disbanded its police department. Now it didn't it didn't immediately reformulate it overnight. I think it took something like 9 or 10 months for them to bring the next police department into fruition. Um but I I you know on the one hand my optimistic side says yes, I think that can send a message both externally to the community and internally to the police department, to the police officers that the old era is gone. On the other hand, I'm not sure that the public at least will fully appreciate that type of symbolism because the fact is a uniform is a uniform. Um, We have trouble often distinguishing police officers of different agencies. Uh, One of the things that you hear from 
uh, immigration attorneys and, and local defense attorneys when they're interviewing clients is they don't ask which agency an officer was from. They ask what color car was he driving? Because that's the only way that people know which which officer they were dealing. With. Yeah. And yeah. I look at the embrace. Was it, I forget his name, but the, I think he was from the Missouri Highway Patrol who came in to organize the police response after the first couple of days. And, and do you remember what I'm talking about? And, and the community yeah. embraced him temporarily. And then it kind of went south again. Right. But it, and to he, me, that and was, he was black and a yeah. lot of the Ferguson PD were white. And so there was, again, the the race issue was right. part of what people were processing. And he, in, in, in the beginning, seemed to be reaching out. And, and, and people seemed to be hungry. Like they, they wanted a police force, but they wanted one that was, that had the right, you know, relationship with them. I think that's exactly right. If you if you look at the the images, if you uh, look at the media reports, there's a tremendous difference between officers standing on a line adverse to the community with riot shields or body armor backed up by a armored vehicle that has a sniper perched on top of it, uh, or at least an officer with uh, an AR-15 perched on top of it, um, which, by the way, is tactically ridiculous. But let's leave <laughs> aside. Uh, there's a tremendous difference between that image and the image of the highway patrol. I believe it was a captain, uh, the, the highway patrol uh, commander who was walking in the crowd with the crowd, wearing his normal uniform. He wasn't out of uniform, but he also wasn't in this heavy body armor or soft riot body armor. Um, that's policing done right. You have to engage with the community. You have to be part of the community. I, sort of going back to police theory, uh, Robert Peel, the, the English father of modern policing, had this idea of officers not being separate from the community, but actually they are the community. So one, one of the things that I've had some conversations about is the difference between officers and civilians, because officers, of course, are civilians. They're not military members. So when we talk about officers and civilians, it's it's I use the term because it's the most convenient way I have to distinguish the two. But even that sets up some some barriers. Uh, but but Ferguson's a really good example. Uh, and yes, the tactics did not work there, I think, in part because they had gotten off to a bad start. I think in part because of the long history uh, of tension between the police agencies and the local community. But there was a tremendous difference in those first few days when the highway patrol came in and adopted an, in, a tactic of engagement rather than confrontation. Policing through cooperation rather than policing through intimidation makes a huge difference. It does, but there will be people, I'm sure, in, in, who will think, you know, listening to this, that the whole problem is not the is not the abstract mentality of the police officers. It's the whole problem is racism. And so if you have, um, so if you were of the community, what does that mean if in a, in a, in a place with two different communities where there is a, uh, um, a, a community which is attached to an older notion of white privilege or something like that. So, you know, if you are a, a police officer, you may think that you are guarding. Um, and it's because, and in fact, you're, you know, acting in a, in a, militaristic way against a portion of the population but you may think that you're guarding partly because you're discounting the the personhood of of the people who are protesting or or assuming the criminality of a certain group right i mean it's absolutely it's so that, a fine line i'm i'm going to i'm going to use a historical example that a lot of people i think may find uncomfortable 
Um, policing doesn't have a linear evolution. It comes from a lot of different um, um, entities, a lot of different public and private inputs that form modern policing. And here in the South, one of those is slave patrols, both ad hoc and privately organized, as well as publicly organized and volunteer-based, um, where the whole point of this semi-policing action, what we uh, would certainly call part of modern policing, order maintenance and promoting feelings of security, we're promoting feelings of security among the white community at the expense of the black community. Uh, this largely a slave community. So how how do we how do we deal with that now? How do we deal with the fact that how do police officers, police agencies deal with the fact that communities are going to have different preferences? I think there again this idea of guardian mentality as a uh, as a mission, as an operational philosophy, as a goal can help guide it. If the guardian mentality is about protecting communities and individual community members from indignity and harm whenever it's possible to do so, if it's about um, building good relationships, then you don't privilege one over another. You get one, you, you engage in whatever type of policing you can to make both communities feel secure. But there's and, an egalitarian there's an egalitarian foundation that that either will or won't be present. In the I mean in the Ferguson context, my recollection is we learned that a lot of a lot of day-to-day policing involved a form of systematic plunder. That that people we, are being arrested, they're being fined, they're being uh, there are bail impositions on them. There's this sort of ongoing racket where a where a white government is getting revenue from black residents in this sort of plunder uh, machine. Wasn't that the case? Absolutely, it was. So, so, that, so when you're talking about communities, I mean, I think one, the hope, my hope would be that when they look at the community and they think of the individuals in the community, it's a human community. It's not a color-coded where this community is valuable and this other one isn't. Exactly. It, it, community is a tough word because there are many different communities, many different facets of a community, but the police are supposed to be responsible to uh, to all of them, responsive to all of them, um, without differentiating between them. Th- this is, uh, again, a somewhat pithy statement, but it's certainly, I think, a true one. The police officer on the beat is as responsible for the safety and security of the person that they are arresting as they are the victim of the crime who's called in to complain. Who might yep. actually be innocent. I mean, <laughs> right? the, 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 the person being arrested, right? I mean, yeah. That's, sure. And the, the officer might treat those people slightly differently. Right. Nevertheless, if the ultimate goal is protection from indignity and harm whenever it is possible, well, so, you know, arrest is an indignity. Sometimes it is not possible or a good idea to avoid that indignity. But if it is, you at least consider it. And if there's a way to do it that minimizes the indignity, you consider that. And that's not just uh, one of the criticisms that I've seen from um, people who are much better vested in uh, race relations than I am, is that the type of policing that I'm talking about is already common among certain segments of the population, among whether you want to call it the privileged class or the politically powerful class or they have social capital, or, or whatever. There, there's a, 
there's a great book chapter by a, 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 a PhD as well as a former police officer named Christopher Cooper called Mediations in Black and White. And he talks about the way that police officers allow white uh, individuals on police calls to settle disputes by mediating. In other words, mediating is about sharing power, right? Yeah. But in calls uh, with blacks or other minorities, police officers are much more likely to command power, use power, rather than share power through this idea of mediation. Hmm. So a, a chunk of what I'm talking about, and I, 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 I will admit maybe that this is just um, how, uh, how non-original some of these thoughts are, is taking the type of policing that we already see among certain segments of the population and making that the status quo among the entire population because police agencies and police officers are serving and protecting an entire population, not parts of it. Well, one thing I'd like to do is, um, and do you have just a couple more minutes? Sure. Um, uh, there's one other topic I want to ask you about, but one thing we can't do today that I, I really would like to have you back on to do, because this stuff about uh, uh, the origins of policing and slave patrols and other, and comparing it to especially other countries where police officers don't carry guns. I mean, I think history and comparative practice, I would love to have you on just to talk about police departments. I mean, I think that's something uh, I, I certainly know very, very little about. And uh, yeah. I think our, our listeners would enjoy. So, yeah, so we got to, we got to pencil that one in for a future date. Um, one thing I want to ask you about though, now is to what extent, like, so, you know, obviously we could do some good by reconstituting police departments, by changing training materials, by studying more the effects of culture on individual officer actions. But let's just look at the kind of traditional legal levers that that lawyers would know something about. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, 1983 suits against um, police officers and against police departments. Uh, these are, you know, for civil rights violations, you know, about an unconstitutional search, violation of equal protection, whatever it is. And have should that tool be used more aggressively? And how does it incentivize officers? I know that, well, for example, everyone, uh, a lot of people who listen to this will be familiar with qualified immunity, that, mm-hmm. uh, th- which is a, you know, um, police officers have quite a bit of wiggle room um, in, in terms of meeting constitutional requirements because of kind of the reasonableness, uh, the, the zone of sloppiness around the constitutional right that the Supreme Court allows for reasons, which you can talk about if you want to. Uh, so... It, it turns out to be very hard to sue a police officer and to win a, a 1983, a civil rights lawsuit because of that doctrine of qualified immunity, I think. Um, but but further, even if you're victorious, I think that the – I don't know how that actually affects the individual police officer or even the police department itself. And maybe it depends on whether it's a municipality or a sheriff or what have you because you know I don't know where the funds come from and what the kind of political economy is within police departments with respect to that state judgment fund or wherever else the funds for these lawsuits come from. Can can you speak to that for a second and maybe give us your opinion on whether 1983 and other kind of uh, lawsuits against police police officers should be a more powerful tool? Is that part of the problem here? Or is this really something that we should leave by the wayside and, and focus on more uh, um, best practices and reconstituting? Yeah, so to, to answer part of that question, um, Joanna Schwartz has done some some really good work about identifying the source of funds that are used to pay 1983 judgments uh, and settlements. And 
perhaps unsurprisingly, individual officers are almost always indemnified by their agency, perhaps by the union or the city or county that they work for. Is she so, at Emory, Joanna Schwartz? Um, I'm just trying to think if I've met this person. Her name sounds so familiar. I think she's um, she's not at NYU. That's where the paper is. Uh, she's right. at, we'll link it up. We'll link uh, it up. At UCLA. She's at UCLA. UCLA. Okay. I think. She Sorry about that. UCs, but I think it's UCLA. Um, so the officers, when we, when we think of, uh, 1983 or state equivalents, um, we think of the effect being the financial sting, right? But individual officers are not facing the financial sting. So what are they facing? Even in the successful suits, what they're facing is the, um, irritation of being sued, the ha- having to commit time and resources to defend themselves, and the psychological, and there is some, the psychological weight of having their actions, their professionalism perhaps called into question. Well, those are costs, but I'm not sure those costs are enough to actually matter. I don't think that officers like, certainly, they don't like being sued, but I don't think that it's particularly effective as a deterrent. Uh, in part because of qualified immunity, in part because of the zones of protection that officers have. Um, Often I think that's appropriate. Officers do have to work in a gray area. They do have to have some room to make reasonable mistakes. Uh, They also have to be held to account when their mistakes are unreasonable. So I think we could see uh, one of the things that I would like to see is some changes to the qualified immunity doctrine that um, relies a little bit less on this idea of the objectively reasonable police officer, whatever that means, and more on um, a, a location or agency or region's best practices. So, for example, if an officer is trained explicitly to not do something, if the agency policy says explicitly, do not do this, I think it's tough for me to conclude that if the officer goes ahead and does it anyway, that it's reasonable. Kind of like a negligence per se doctrine. A little bit, yeah, a little yeah. bit. So take the take the New York Police Department chokeholds, for example. Chokeholds have been banned there for years and years. Um, could a chokehold be constitutional? Absolutely, it could be. But when an officer is instructed explicitly in training and in policy to not use a chokehold, if they use a chokehold, I have a hard time saying that that was reasonable for them to do, even though it may be reasonable for another officer somewhere else to do it in different circumstances, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, and, it's, and it's one thing to appreciate the reasonableness of an officer in the heat of the moment having to make a split decision like doing something that the court ex post would conclude is unconstitutional. But even if that happens, it seems to me the victim of that procedure should be able to say, well, you know what? The police department should have had a policy. They shouldn't, the police officer shouldn't have had to make this decision in the heat of the moment. Right. And, and I don't know that 1983 is a vehicle for making those kinds of, you you know, it's a different kind of injury. It's like, I I don't, you know, the officer should have made a better decision, but also the officer shouldn't have had to make a hard decision. Yes, it, it's a it can be a pretty it can be a pretty blunt hammer. So uh, I, I'm sort of a fan of moving away from this idea of constitutional regulation of police and litigation over constitutional regulation of police 
as a primary method of getting better police practices? Um, what areas are there for lawyers and legal advocates to work under? Well, one of the least, uh, I think, capitalized on is local law ordinances. A police agency is an arm of local government. So local governments can pretty efficiently um, regulate police in a way that the Constitution can't at a very fine level. So I, 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 one example is um, in the early days of tasers when they were, um, they remain controversial, but when they were both controversial and experimental, um, some agencies, I'm sorry, not agencies, some localities, municipalities or counties across the country um, passed ordinances forbidding the use of public funds, police department funds uh, to purchase tasers. Well, that's not a constitutional decision, certainly, um, but it's one that gives political control over police actions to the local polity, which I think we often forget. There's a, another, we can talk about it next time we chat, but um, after the police professionalism movement, which was a response to problems of nepotism and political control over policing, modern policing has really struggled to have any connection to local political processes. Uh, I think that's hurt policing. We're not as responsive in policing to the public as we should be, in part because we were, you know, in the, in the 1930s and so on, um, we were too responsive to public demands, and it was nepotistic. Hmm. Um, I, you, you can't, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I think it's a mistake to look at policing and saying, well, where are we and how can we fix it without considering how, how we got to where we are? Uh, otherwise, I think we're going to run into some of the same lessons. I know we both have a million more questions. Yeah, I, this, I could just... Oh, wow. We'll say hours. <laughs> Hour, we need many, many, many more hours. Um, well, because there are so many different directions to take it in. Right. And, and, and I do, like, I think this was a good, like, baseline. I want to get more specific in every single area, though. Yeah. Because as, as our spiritual father, Judge John Hodgman says, specificity is the soul of narrative. It is. Yeah. And as I told Steve, yeah. uh, when I told Seth when I first invited him, is that he was committing to at least 10 future episodes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to have to review my emails about that, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's in there. It's in, trust me. It's in every contract. We, <laughs> <laughs> that was, you know, with with the uh, with the basket that we send you for your fake green room of of goodies, oh, all the oral argument goodies that you're enjoying right now, uh, is, is that you're you're committed to it? No, but seriously, thank you so much for joining us, and we do, I, I really do hope you'll come back. I I would be delighted to. It was a, an honor and privilege to be here. So thank you, and I, I apologize for any rambling that I did. The area of policing is um, incredibly complicated, and it's difficult to break down. Uh, so I think more conversations, not just here, but also publicly are absolutely essential. So I applaud you for having it. Well, yeah, Seth, you, you're actually contractually obligated to apologize to our listeners for my rambling. That's in every, <laughs> <laughs> that's in, that's in every contract. Doesn't seem fair, but there you have it. <laughs> yeah. I apologize to all who were offended. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, Seth. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye.